0: Continue this theological
1: discussion in a car or in the jailhouse from
2: the
1: cops. Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. I'm Bryce Hales, and I'm here with my friend Brad Edwards, and we are seeking to help you navigate faithfulness to Jesus in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. And we have been on a bit of a hiatus for a few weeks because I have been moving across the country. Um, Why have you been moving across the country, Bryce? Uh, Yeah. So in addition to hosting this podcast together, Brad and I are now pastoring together. I am the new pastor of spiritual formation at The Table in Lafayette, Colorado. Yes, cue uh, uh,
0: cheers and celebration uh, sound effect, please. That would be awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so it's been. It turns out that uh, there are a few things more important than the podcast, like you know, keeping a almost five year old church plant afloat in hyper progressive Boulder County at the tail end of a pandemic. Turns out that's kind of hard. And uh, even beyond that, um, Bryce was just lucky lucky enough to find a place to live. So uh, <laughs> it's been crazy. You've been basically living at a out of a suitcase for
1: how many months? For uh, six months. We've been in, tra- yeah, our, tra- our family's been in transition for about six months, and, and now we're here and on the ground and loving being here. And we are back. We're back. So yeah, so we have been on hiatus for a couple weeks, but we are really excited to be back today. We're excited for this conversation. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you know that we've been exploring questions of identity. And we've been saying that there's both a modern and a traditional approach to identity formation that are both based on what you accomplish. And these are both distinct from a gospel identity, which is received from God rather than achieved by our own effort. And we've been sketching some of the theological and philosophical contours of that debate over the past couple of our episodes, but we wanted to have conversations around particular issues that are sources of identity for modern people. And so today we're going to be talking about sexuality and same-sex attraction about the way that sexuality has, has really become almost ground zero for debates about identity in Western culture and about how Christians seeking to be faithful to Jesus wrestle through these questions. And so our guest today is Stephen Moss, Stephen was born and raised in Panama City, Florida, in a Christian family. He's a graduate of Sanford University and Covenant Seminary. He worked for three years as an intern with Reformed University Fellowship in Knoxville, Tennessee, as well as for First Light Ministries in St. Louis, heading up their support ministry for Christians who are same-sex attracted. Beginning in 2018, he was also one of the founders of Revoice and served as conference coordinator and vice president of operations until June of last year. So, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you here.
2: Absolutely, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah,
0: I think one of the reasons I'm especially excited, Stephen, to, to be talking about this is this is one of those things that oh my gosh, social media has made SIG so much worse uh, as as a as a way of talking about. It. Even if the culture wars were not. A thing. This would still be a miserable thing to discuss uh, in the context of social media because there's just way too much nuance needed. There's way too much story that is taken out, no context. And so you're doing a really brave thing by, by, by coming on here. And we really appreciate um, the yeah.
1: vulnerability of just like, hey, I'm just going to kind of share my story. Um so, yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to say even right at the outset, um, as as we've been prepping for this conversation, just thinking about the various audiences that uh that we have a sense are listening to our podcast, um, there's really I think three different um, groups of people we're, we're trying to speak to in this conversation. So th- there are pastors who are thinking about issues of identity and sexuality in, in very theological categories. Uh, we also have, I think, good faith Christians who, uh, for whom some of the terms and categories that we're discussing today are going to be maybe unfamiliar. And then there's also our our friends, our neighbors, those that we're ministering to who struggle to conceive of any of this uh, question about same sex attraction. Uh, in terms of god's goodness for us, so we're kind of taking our um doing doing our best shot to speak to a wide swath of uh, of people there. Um, but just to get things started, stephen, well, let's try to pick up your story as issues of gender and sexuality and identity we're becoming a bigger part of the cultural conversation nationally and within the Christian church. In 2015, you spoke at Christ Press Nashville with Scott Sauls about same-sex attraction. Can you tell us how all that came together? You know, how did you find yourself as a guy, uh, I'm guessing early to mid-20s at that point, speaking about same-sex attraction at a, a fairly large church in Nashville?
2: Yeah, um, it was definitely a surprise uh, to me as much as anyone. Uh, I, I think near the beginning of, of that talk, I even said, you know, if you had told me just a couple years ago that I would be uh, standing up here on stage uh, sharing about this, uh, I would have thought you were crazy because even just a couple years ago, a couple years before that, uh, I was still kind of thinking through, you know. How can I tell as few people about this as possible mm-hmm. over the course of my life? You know, like maybe my pastors, maybe a best friend, but like, you know, I don't need to tell anybody else. Um and, and then there I was speaking on stage to uh, a few hundred people and, and and going out on YouTube. So um, I had tried dating uh, a girl in college and and it, it didn't go well. I kind of assumed that everything would just work itself out for me and and it didn't. <laughs> and so uh, I sat down with my RUF campus minister uh, at the time, the summer before my senior year, and um, shared with him that I was that I, I struggled with same sex attraction. And and he was he was very very kind, very gracious. Uh, any number of directions he could have pointed me, especially back in 2009. But um, you know, he really pointed me to Jesus and really pointed me to saying, you know, instead of figuring out how do we change your circumstances or how do we address the difficulties here first, like what does it look like for you to obey Jesus and to be faithful to Jesus in light of this reality, whether or not it ever changes? Uh, and that was really important for me, for setting me on a course of of faithfulness uh, that was going to definitely include a lot of twists and turns and ups and downs. But the expectation being, uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus and be obedient regardless of circumstances and not need those to change first?
0: What What was it like to hear that initially? Like, How did you receive that? Was that particularly hard or was that like, I kind of knew that?
2: I think in many ways, if he had pointed me to you know, a counselor or a program or a ministry that was going to help me try to change my orientation. I think I would have really been open to that at the time, because in many ways, like part of the reason I was telling him was saying like, listen, this is a problem. I need help. Hmm. I thought I was going to be able to date uh, a woman and have it all just sort itself out. That didn't work. And so now I need you to help me figure out what to do so I can move forward with my life. And he kind of, and he didn't do that. And, um, he didn't give me the the clear answer, or the clear solution. He really just, he well did what a pastor was supposed to do. And he gave me Jesus. I'm a fixer. I'm a doer. I see a problem. I go for it. I'm like, okay, how do we, how do we address this? How do we mm-hmm. do it? Um, and, uh, my campus minister pointed me to, to Jesus instead. That was so key. Yeah.
1: And so you said that was around 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 2015, I think yeah. you, you're, you're speaking at, at Christ Press Nashville, right. addressing this publicly, Yeah, you know, is that for, for the first time?
2: So I, uh, Finally, basically, I finished up the RUF internship, moved to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis uh, to start my start working on the MDiv. Uh, and really, when I moved to St. Louis, that was when I decided I wanted to start talking about this more publicly. I realized uh, this is a you know really key part of my testimony. A lot of how I really came to understand and believe and accept God's grace in my own life has to do with this part of my story. And I can't not talk about it. Uh, and so it was when I, when I moved to, uh, to St. Louis is when I started sharing a little bit more publicly, uh, didn't hide it from people. I shared about it when it came up in conversation, uh, but then January of 2014 is when I finally told everybody in person that I needed to tell in person. Uh, and that's when I wrote a blog post and put it out there on my blog. I posted it on social media and, uh, and that kind of set things in motion. Um, hmm. uh, I, had a couple small speaking engagements where I had connections and new people had me come share my testimony. But then, uh, I was put in contact with Scott, uh, having been in RUF at university of Tennessee. Uh, a lot of my uh, students there and connections there had all grown up at CPC and were from hmm. CPC, uh, and was put in contact with Scott. And we started talking and pretty quickly I found myself up on stage sharing with, more people at once than I ever thought I'd share with in my entire lifetime. So, Mm -hmm. so what, what really kind of led me to start thinking about blogging about it or sharing about it at all was I had discovered, uh, some, some other blogs on the internet at that time from other people who were writing about their story of being gay uh, or same-sex attracted, depending on what language they used, uh, but holding uh, to, the, uh, to the traditional biblical Christian sexual ethic, which meant that they saw the only ways forward for them uh, as far as uh, if they wanted to be faithful to, to God and to Scripture uh, was uh, celibacy or uh, marrying somebody Of The opposite gender. And so uh, I had gotten very uh, started reading a lot of those blogs. uh, And that that was kind of fairly early in what was what's known as the side B movement. A lot of these bloggers were known as side B. Uh, and so, yeah, the side A versus side B lingo. Uh, its origins goes back to uh, a group called the, the Gay Christian Network. It's I think that they go by a different name now, but uh, it went back to, to the early days of, of the Gay Christian Network with the idea being that they wanted to bring together... Uh, Christians who were in the LGBT community and try to bridge some differences in sexual ethic, and so they coined the terms side A, meaning uh, Christians who were gay and were uh, affirming, believed that God and uh, Scripture uh, was was affirming or would bless uh, same sex romance, same sex uh, uh, relationships, uh, and then side B were those who were in the LGBT community uh, but who believed that God. Uh, in no situations would bless uh, same-sex relationships. And so, uh, so that dichotomy started, uh, and th- that lingo started being used more and more. Uh, and so I-, I was really kind of reading these blogs and kind of figuring out, yeah, the Side B movement, meeting, you know, getting connected online with people who were, who were really writing and speaking. A spiritual friendship blog was big at the time. Uh, you know, Wes Hill, uh, his book, Washed and Waiting, came out in 2011. And so, you know, all of this was kind of happening right there in the early mm. 2000s, or early uh the 2010s. And so, so yeah, so when I, when I wrote my blog, I mean, I really wanted to kind of offer, uh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the writers were, were Catholic, uh, were Orthodox or were kind of more, broadly evangelical, and as somebody who is, you know, working for RUF and really planning to go to seminary, wanting to be ordained in the PCA, I saw a lot of opportunities to say, like, I want to write about this more specifically as somebody who is reformed, uh, who is in the PCA, who has grown up in the PCA, who loves the PCA, uh, who, you know, affirms the Westminster Standards, all of these things. Uh, I want to write uh, about it from that perspective, because I see a lot of opportunities for the PCA uh, to minister well here. And I think my story could be helpful. Uh, and so, yeah, so I was writing as somebody who was saying, I experienced same-sex attraction. I also hold to uh, the traditional view of marriage as between one man and one woman. That means I'm probably going to be celibate or maybe I'll marry a woman. But uh, but this is this is where I'm coming from, really the way I framed it at the time. Uh, was the idea of this was a mask I had been wearing growing up. This was something that I was afraid if people knew about me. Uh, Mm -hmm. They wouldn't, maybe not that they would reject me or that they wouldn't love me, but like something would be different. I thought I was earning their love. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my fear was that if that mask ever came off, that then, you know, that would change. Uh, And so I really framed my story back at that time. And also when I spoke at Christ Pres as, uh, you know, the importance of being able to take off taking off those masks and that, that Jesus gives us the freedom to take off those masks and not have shame over these mm-hmm. things that we're trying to hide and being able to be honest and bringing those to him, bringing those to the foot of the cross uh, and living honestly in community. So yeah, that was really kind of the, what motivated me to, to write that blog post and then kind of what I wanted to help hammer home when I speak yeah. at Christ and, Press.
1: And so what what was the reaction to your blog post and, and speaking at Christ Press?
2: It was, uh, I mean, it was largely positive, you know, it was, I, I got a lot of, you know, very supportive comments, uh, you know, very few, I mean, I, few of any people who, who knew me who were in my life, you know, had any kind of negative feedback, um, you know, it, it really I, and even in my mind, I, I I really didn't see it as anything controversial. But there was some after the blog post and speaking at Christ Prez, um, there was a lot of criticism as well, less in the mainstream, less, you know, out there, but kind of in the, the corners of uh, reformed and, and PCA, social media, blogosphere, uh, my name started coming up more and more. And that was, uh, you know, as somebody who was at this point, just a second year seminary student, on one hand, there was that part of me that kind of relished, you know, being relevant or being controversial. But then there was also that part of me, it was like, you know, my gosh, I'm just like, why are they talking about me? Why are these people who don't know me, uh, assuming that they know all these things about me and my life, you know, I'm Watching on uh, social media comment sections as you know elders. There's your first mistake. There's your first mistake. (laughs) Never read the comments. (laughs) That's the thing. And people, people who loved me were telling me, "Stay off of Twitter. Stay off of Facebook. Don't go looking for this stuff." I couldn't stay away from it, Um, and and it sucked me in. And I, you know, and I'm sitting here watching elders in my denomination debating whether or not I'm a Christian. Uh, based off of what I had shared. And it completely, and at the time, I I had absolutely no reason why. Uh, I had no concept for what what could possibly be the issue.
0: It was in that year that I first heard the language of side A and side B. Mm -hmm. And up to that point, did not know of anyone who were uh, articulating a biblical faithfulness according to a biblical sexual ethic, and and yet still w- w- was, was same-sex attracted. I didn't even know that was an option because, Bryce and I mentioned earlier that we're in Boulder County, Colorado, there are not any examples uh, where someone is doing that and they want to. Mm-hmm. Right, as opposed to maybe some kind of a fundamentalist or legalistic guilt and pressure or shame to do so. Th- sure. That there is a joyful obedience in something as significant to your identity in terms of how our culture understands identity as your sexuality is is just bonkers and almost unheard of. In fact, I, I shared your blog post with someone um, who was at our church plant at the time, mm-hmm. and the the guy just like wept because he literally didn't know that was possible. He thought mm-hmm. that it would be unavoidable that he could either, uh, you know, he would either be gay or a Christian or he would be same sex attracted or a Christian. And that right. he couldn't do both because he wasn't out there looking for, uh, you know, the gay Christian network or, you know, he wasn't, sure. he wasn't searching for that because he came from, a, um, you know, a more moralistic church background and and didn't know that that could even exist. Like that right. there there might be a way for him to actually follow Jesus in light of his sexuality. Sure.
2: Well, and, and the issue is, I mean, in many ways, I mean, I was still very young, uh, very, just getting started in in seminary. And, you know, I was reformed, I grew up reformed uh, in the PCA. I also, you know, didn't necessarily know my, my Westminster confessions, you know, backwards and forwards, and uh, didn't necessarily always know, Uh, the best way to communicate what I was saying. And also, that wasn't what I was trying to do. You know, I wasn't trying to, uh, you know, teach a seminary class at this point or even necessarily preach a sermon as much as share my story. And at that point, using the categories that made the most sense to me, you know, there are probably some ways in which I was not fully ready for the level of scrutiny that that was then mm. going to get uh, put on me. Uh, I, I didn't really know what to do, didn't necessarily hadn't really developed the thick skin necessary to, to deal with that kind of uh, criticism and those kinds of attacks, even if they were coming from, you know, more, uh, uh, you know, more not necessarily mainstream venues. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, I, I was getting a lot of praise heaped on me as well. Um, and a lot of affirmation and a lot of people who were really, you know, really excited about my story and my testimony, which which I was thankful for. Yeah. And, you know, and so then it really is, uh, you know, I started, uh, I started getting angry, you know, (laughs) a lot of a lot of frustration and resentment started building, you know, I always like to tell people, my gosh, I, you know, I was I was nailing my classes, uh, the beginning of seminary, and then just it it was it was a fight to the finish in terms hmm. of um, you know a lot of depression uh, came in I was that was a real struggle for me near the end of seminary uh, a lot of frustration just in terms of like I didn't understand why people thought what I was saying was controversial hmm. um, and the only explanation I could come up with at the time was that they didn't you know, regardless of if I was obedient or not, they didn't want me in that experience in the church. Hmm. Um, I don't think that that was everybody's, uh, motivation, but to me, like that was the only, that was all I could, I could really think of. And then on the flip side, um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like, is this, is this actually what I believe? You know, like I, I kind of, you know, came out and went public real quick, but now I'm like really near the end of seminary was really wrestling with, is this like, am I, I'm about to go get ordained in the PCA. Is this actually what mm-hmm. I believe? Cause if, and if it is, I need to figure it out now. Um, and so there was kind of this sense of, I had, you know, told my story in, in many ways, I think made it maybe sound a little bit easier than it actually is, uh, in the way that I framed it. And, uh, before I had really gone through some of the, the trials and the doubts and the confusion myself. And so I, I really kind of needed to go through some of that there at the end of seminary too, to actually, you know, come up to the edge and look over it and then be able to say like, okay, now that I'm actually looking at mm-hmm. what it is that I'm giving up, what it is that I, I believe God is asking me to say no to. Is it actually worth it? Am I actually going to say no? Wow. Um, Because if I think I might not say no at some point, I need to go ahead and figure that out now. And so, really having to come up to that line and wrestle with that and actually going to the arguments, I mean, emailing people I knew who were affirming, who had gone affirming at certain points, pastors I knew uh, who had formerly been in the PCA, um, I emailed them and I asked them, like, give me your best explanation for this. Tell me how you got to this point. Um, like, give me, give me the best case you can, because I'm wrestling here. I'm struggling here. And they sent me, you know, they were very kind and and sent me kind of like their process of how they got there. And I just remember there was just this sinking feeling as I was reading it going like, this is it. Like, this is, this is the, this is the best you have for me. I was like, this is just, it was just not convincing at all. Like it, for me, I'm like, and what I believe the Bible is and what I believe about um, the Bible being inerrant and what I believe about um, God and who God is and who Jesus is and the role of suffering in the Christian life and all of these things. Like I just, I could not square any of those commitments with the journey that I had seen some of these people take. Mm. Um,
0: and, and maybe just to connect what you're saying there to something like Bryce and I have hammered <laughs> this idea that um, the current flavor of, and, and this has been the case for at least a couple few decades, but the current flavor of individualism is um, what Philip Reeve calls the therapeutic man. And it's the idea that like authority and, and truth and like how we know things as source and how you feel about them. Your personal experience of them. And what I'm hearing you say is that, like, yeah, that is a really poor argument. Um, and you're saying, like, no, I, I'm actually trying to root my life in something that it transcends my experience of everything. And, and and that includes your sexuality. That can't be an exception. Otherwise it's not true.
2: Yeah. And that was, and I was like, there were, there were biblical arguments that people were making there's biblical arguments that get made. And I don't want to dismiss the work and the scholarship that people have done. You know, I, I don't want to sit here and just dismiss all of that work just with one fell swoop here. But like, I've looked at those arguments and then, but then at the end of the day, what I kept finding was that it kept resting on this idea of God couldn't really be asking this of me? And and what I all kept wanting to ask is I'm like, okay, well, what if these biblical questions were settled? What if it was very clear what God said here, like I and many others believe it is? Like, what if you accepted that it was clear? Would you be willing to give this up? Like, would you mm. actually be willing? And that's what it kept coming back to for me, um, was this question of like, I, I, this is what I want. This is what I feel drawn to. Um, but I, I, I can't, that's not, that's not a good enough reason. You know, that's not like, that doesn't make it, that doesn't make it true. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it good for me. So w- when I kind of came to the the realization that no, my, my convictions actually were pretty solid. Um, it was not a moment of the sky opening and the sunbeams coming down and everything felt great. It, it was, it was kind of a sense of like, well, shoot, you know, like, I guess I'm stuck here, I guess. And From that place, uh, that's really when I kind of discovered and got more and more plugged into what's known as uh, side B. Uh, community side B world, as opposed to you know, just like side B theology or beliefs, uh, but like the community of people uh, that had kind of been growing online. People who, as time went on, at like the Gay Christian Network conferences, mm-hmm. those who were side B became more and more of a minority as the organization became more and more affirming, uh, and so the, uh, the the side B world felt more and more out of place. Uh, in gay Christian network spaces. Uh, they also didn't feel necessarily at home uh, in in the conservative church uh, for various reasons. And so they kind of created this almost, I like to describe it as a, a refugee camp online mm. for people mm. who... Uh, You know, saw themselves as as gay, same-sex attracted, LGBT, uh, who did not, could not really find a home in affirming gay spaces, could not find a home in conservative churches. And so really kind of landed in this online community of people Um, and where there wasn't really necessarily strong leadership or, you know, there was no one person who was kind of directing or leading things. It really just kind of was more this like, again, this band of people that found each other and were trying to support each other. From all different, you know, Catholics, Orthodox, every flavor of Protestant. And I kind of landed in this group uh, and, you know, really found, you know, support there, especially as I kind of felt more and more unsure of whether or not, like, I actually fit or, you know, did I actually fit in in the conservative church? Like, I believe the same things as they do, but, you know, I just look around, I show up to church fellowship events and, you know, hanging like just other Christian men. And I just feel like I have very dissimilar interests to them. And I just don't always have things in common and especially being single. And, you know, it just kind of, I I really found what felt like a home and a community and a purpose within that community online. I can
0: imagine that in this extremely black and white world of like homosexuality, bad, heterosexuality, good. And the church, you know, a healthy approach from the church in that Kind of very dichot- that dichotomous uh, way of framing things. It's probably going to be like, no, you're accepted here, but probably not. It's it's just not going to be talked about a whole lot. And so I could see that like if you're trying to follow Jesus and and submit even your sexuality to Him, then man, you're going to need a lot of encouragement and support because the the pressure uh, to just allow the your sexual identity to inform your Christian one instead of the other way around is has got to be just so significant right
2: and exactly and as I was looking around I needed this place to land but then I was looking around I realized like I actually have it pretty good here in terms of I have a lot of friends here in St. Louis I have a lot of friends who have the same same story as me same experience where like I feel the sense of camaraderie I have a lot of friends who do not have the same experience but who are really like strong brothers who love me care for me well I have a church that's supportive where I have, you know, great community. So, you know, like I, I just had such a strong support system and community here in St. Louis. And I realized like, you know, and as difficult as it is, I can actually imagine a way forward. I can mm-hmm. still hold on to some hope here. And I'm looking around this community online and see how many people are so isolated. This community was all that they had. Um, the only place they felt safe. And I'm just sitting here thinking, my gosh, I wish I could bring all of these people to St. Louis and give them a taste of like my Christian community and church here and help them see like there are churches, uh, that you can trust where you can kind of trust the leadership enough to really be able to, to submit and follow. Uh, there's places where you can have friends uh, that don't necessarily have to have the same experience as you to be loving, good friends. Um, I just, I really wanted to bring everybody in. And that's really this kind of like, again, like I said, I'm a fixer, I'm a doer. I'm thinking, gosh, there's this issue here. There's this community of people. I I see myself as one of them. How do I help? And to me, I I was really kind of got hooked on this idea of how do I bring people in, experience what I've been blessed with here in St. Louis. Hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of different things that led to, to revoice a lot of you know different people involved and who followed their own paths and their own kind of journeys that all kind of brought us together in that moment. All I can share here is, is you know, my own story and experience. But yeah, I was I got connected uh, with Nate Collins and uh, the summer of 2017. Uh, and we realized that we both had a very similar passion for wanting to minister uh, directly to people who were were gay, same sex attracted, who were Christians, who held traditional beliefs, and who felt like they didn't have a place to belong. Hmm. And and my real strong passion, wanting to move this forward, was to say like I want to help open the door of the historic traditional Orthodox Church. You know, I asked uh, my church to host it, and and they agreed. I asked. One of my professors at Covenant Seminary who I knew could talk about Leviticus like nobody else could, uh, you know, and I and brought these and wanted invited uh, people in because in my mind, I saw the biblical theological resources that we had in the PCA. Uh, I knew the experience that I had, the story that I had of coming out to my campus minister. And what the fact that he pointed me to Jesus and really the encouragement and support that I had found in faithfulness and in my sanctification. And I wanted to really open those doors, help open those doors for other people um, who didn't necessarily have that as easy of access to those things. Um, so yeah, for me, like that really motivated, uh, the beginning of this thing, you know, Nate, uh, had the idea, like, what if we, what if we just throw a conference? I don't know if we're going to do an organization or not, but let's do a conference. Let's bring people here. Let's, ha- let's get good speakers. Let's have good teaching. Um, let's have fellowship, let's have worship and let's see what happens. And so yeah, that was really how it started.
0: So it sounds uh, kind of what you're describing. It sounds like a, it's a very interdenominational event. Mm -hmm. Um, and then maybe 50, 50, like outreach and also just worship conference. And like, yes, there's teaching there, but it really kind of seems to fall under those two categories. Is that fair? I'm hearing like a lot of support to know you're not alone, that you have, like that you do belong in the church because of Christ, not because of your sexuality. And, and that, um, that like, there were a lot of people who didn't know that you wanted them to get a taste of that. So that in a sense, an, an outreach,
2: right. Exactly. And, and part of it, you know, is that the re- some of the reasons why it can be kind of hard to explain and figure out and, you know, people can go back and look at things we were writing at the time or saying and, and try to say, well, you say this, but then this is over here. And I'm like, I'm like, I just kind of want to be like, guys, have y'all ever started an organization before? Have you ever like just had an idea? and said, Hey, let's give this a try before. And so, so yeah, that's one of the, I, I hear, um, amongst some of the, the critics uh, uh, even including our, our very good faith critics uh, I you know I, I would see people talk about revoice theology or talk about uh, side B theology as if it's this one thing and and I always just want to say like I, I get what it's kind of a catch-all um, but I I'm like there's there was no revoice theology uh, it really was re- multiple kind of revoice theologies. You know, we had uh, Catholics involved from the beginning. We had we had Orthodox people. We had um, you know Baptists. We had Presbyterians. We had Anglicans. We had people just kind of broad evangelicals. We had people all over the map, and all of whom were going to approach these basic questions of sin. And, and temptation and desire and culture and all these kinds of things with a, from a different perspective um, that maybe, you know, we don't agree with each other on, but we're not going to label each other heretics over it either. Um, and so there was there was definitely uh, some distinction, I think, early on, um, maybe some of those distinctions weren't as clear. Uh, I think we were all, we were fired up, especially after that first conference. Uh, you know, we were, we were fired up. We were excited. I mean, it, the worship at that first conference was one of the most powerful worship experiences of my life. I mean, it's one of those, like, you know, everyone who was there, you know, is, you know saying like the Holy Spirit, they, they had not, you have a bunch of Presbyterians saying that they had never felt the Holy Spirit, like <laughs> they felt it in that room right there, which, Yeah. Um, you know, so, that was a you know great experience, but I, I think over time, um, you know what started to happen is, is criticism comes in, and we're having to respond uh, to that mm-hmm. criticism, and really kind of realizing like, okay, this is this wild idea that two friends came up with, and they were like, reached out to our other friends, and we're like, hey, y'all come join us too. Reached out to a church, said, hey, will you host this? Reached out to basically just connections we had, and say, let's put this together. Let's throw a conference. Um, you know, and then now all of a sudden we're like, okay, well, now we actually have to start figuring things out. We actually okay, we have to start nailing down what do we as an organization believe? What are our um, commitments? what are our standards? Uh, you know, what are our lines? What lines will we not cross? And as we really kind of started to hammer out those things over the next you know few years or a couple of years, um, yeah, you know, it became potentially even a little bit more obvious uh, that there were, there were some divides, uh, in terms of, uh, those who were, you know, had some more reformed theological commitments and positions and, uh, those, uh, with, uh, who kind of held more the Catholic view or, which is also in many times kind of a, the, the traditional evangelical view as well of, of desire and sin and temptation and, and so, yeah, there were there were different uh, emphases in people within the revoice sphere uh, and definitely within the side B sphere. I mean, there's so much diversity within the side B sphere. And that's even why in some ways, you know, people will ask me, well, where are you side B? And my response to that myself uh, is actually similar to my response when people ask me if I'm evangelical, which is what do you mean when you say that word? Uh, Because if, if by that word, we're referring to like a specific set of beliefs about what scripture says about this topic. Okay, then yes, I'm side B. I'm side B as opposed to side A. Yeah, uh, if that's mm. if that's the dichotomy that we're using here. But um, because side B means so many things to so many people, there's no clear distinction. There's no one who set who who is the authority who sets the definition of what is side B and what isn't. Um,
0: you you mentioned you know desire and temptation, and uh, you you told Bryce and I that a big uh, there there was a significant. Um, kind of period after that first 2018 revoice, maybe was even after the 2019 one, where you kind of had this realization around like a reformed approach to that topic in particular was was kind of a, a significant shift for you and that yeah. maybe even helped you see where the, that diversity was.
2: Absolutely. And this kind of goes back to even what we were saying too about like when I spoke at Scott Saul's church and when I did other speaking and writing things and those, those intervening years, where I wasn't entirely sure why what I was saying was so controversial. Um, you know, the way that I was framing things at the time, uh, was, was pretty simple. I was saying, you know, like it's, it's not a sin to be same sex attracted. It's not a sin to experience, uh, just, you know, attraction to the same sex. It's a sin to lust and it's a sin to act on those attractions. Um, but, you know, and so it was it was that typical it's essentially it was a simplified version of kind of the, the Catholic or, or, or more evangelical view, uh, you know, that you're you're really only culpable for sins that kind of you choose. And hmm. you're not uh, if, if you don't Indulging. act on it or if, yeah, if you don't indulge it, you know, then it's it, you can't really call it a sin. Um, and that was the way I was framing things. And, and that, uh, you know, and again, I grew up reformed. And so like, I, I know, I mean, I learned the catechism growing up. I know I heard the other, the, the more reformed view, which would say like, no, even the, even our original indwelling sin, even our temptations that flow from our sinful nature, those are rightly and properly called sin Two, uh It's our, it's our original sin as opposed to like, you know, like specific actual sins we commit, but that's, it's still sin. Hmm. Um, I, uh, you know, I know I had, taught that had learned that growing up, but for whatever reason, I had never kind of really made that connection here specifically. Uh, and in my mind, I mean, the first person who ever used the word concupiscence, uh, that I ever heard, uh, you know, there's the the $20 word for the day, but I mean, yeah. What could you define concupiscence for us? I, I, gosh, concupiscence being the idea of like those, uh, those desires, like the, the, inclination to sin, uh, the fact that, You know, even before you consciously uh, dream up a sin or assent to a temptation or to a sin, the inclination to that that rises up in you completely unbidden and unasked for, um, uh, known as then as concupiscence. Uh, And then the question, you know, the debates, uh, you know, in church history uh, between the, the Catholics and the Protestants were really like, is that actually sin? Is that inclination to sin? Can we actually call that sin, or is it only sin once you actually act on it? Um, so the first person, the first time I'd ever heard that word was from um, uh, a guy in our denomination online who, yeah, he was one of these guys who was arguing in some public forums that I wasn't even a believer. Um, and he's trying to tell me also in private messaging, uh, you know, that what I was saying was uh, was not true because you know I was I was basically saying that concupiscence was not a sin, even though or was not sin, even though that's what uh, the Reformation uh, believed and that's what we believe in the PCA uh, as it as laid out in Westminster, and I. And to me at the time, like that sounded barbaric. I was like, well, that can't be right. I was like, one, like the only person, you know, like you're the only one who's telling me this. And like, this doesn't seem accurate because all it was, all I was hearing from this guy was the bad news that, you know, like Mm. even this thing, you can't control this feeling that rises up, just noticing somebody who's attractive, like you're sinning, that's sin. And I remember my reaction was like, well, goodness, if that was true, I might as well just throw myself in the ocean because there's no way to win. Hmm. Like, I, like, I don't know. There's no hope here. And it also didn't help that like the only time I was hearing this topic come up was in relation to same-sex attraction. And so hmm. there was just even more of this sense of shame that like only you, only this is the kind of concupiscence <laughs> that we're worried about is when the, that inclination to sin is manifests as, a, as an attraction to the same sex. Um, so my, my view of that was kind of like, okay, I guess that's probably what the reformers actually believed. Uh, you know, I'm, okay, maybe, but, I, but this doesn't ring true with what we believe now about you know, the nature of, of sexual orientation. And like, they just didn't like, I, I in my mind, it's like, I don't know how to fit this all together. That doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't make sense in my experience, because for me, like I felt this very distinct difference between. Noticing somebody who is attractive, and then actually dwelling on that attraction, wanting mm. to do something with that mm. attraction. Um, and so, it really wasn't until I was I was working for this uh, local ministry, First Light, and I was writing uh, our statement of beliefs for our uh, our ministry group for for people who are same sex attracted. And uh, in our ministry, uh, in our statement of beliefs, I wrote uh, the phrase something along the lines of like, "It's not a sin." to be attracted to somebody of the same sex. It's only a sin if you act on it. Um, and to me, again, I, that just made sense to me. It seems just obvious. Uh, and it, 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 seemed in line with what I, everything else I believed and, uh didn't even think that was controversial and then a, a local pastor here who is the chairman of our board just respect him so much this kind uh gentle very biblical uh man took took me out to coffee and kind of was the first person he sat down It's was like you know what like this isn't actually what we believe. Um, this isn't. This is. I, I actually wouldn't word it this way. And of course, my first reaction is like, "Oh my gosh, you too!" <laughs> you know, like how? Are, how is you know? But he actually helped me see that there. It wasn't just the bad news because I remember telling him like, "What am I supposed to? If this is true, what am I supposed mm. to do with that?" Mm-hmm. Um, and he says like, "Well, you repent. You, you like, you know, because Jesus is paid for it all." And you're free. Like mm-hmm. like the gospel frees you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he helped me see that like your, your goal in the Christian life is not to try to remove your original sin. It's not to try to root out these inclinations. He's like, that's kind of the Holy Spirit's job over the court, you know, through sanctification. Like we believe that to some degree, and it's not going to always be consistent and it's going to, you know, maybe take three steps forward and one step back. But like, we believe that over the course of your life, there will be progress as you are sanctified by the spirit. And like these desires and inclinations will have less and less of a hold on you. Um, but that's not really your job. I mean, yes, you, you mortify those desires, but like, that's not the the emphasis of your energy and focus needs Hmm. to be on resisting those desires when they come up and God is pleased with you when you do that.
0: Okay. So in, in light of that, kind of like having somebody like sit down and talk with you and like help you see that more clearly. What did repentance with regard to your sexuality look like? How did that change?
2: Uh, It didn't change immediately after that conversation because in that conversation I was like, okay, this actually makes sense to me. Uh, I kind of see this a little bit better. I wasn't quite ready to let go uh, of where I was though, because like that seems, I I mean, at that point I had kind of built a lot on, you know, saying that I was, I was Christian, I was gay, I was celibate. Um, You know, this is, you know, I can, there's a lot about gay culture that I identify with and appreciate. There's things that I challenge and push back on. I kind of invested a lot, um, both professionally, spiritually, emotionally, in a lot of these, these ideas. And like the idea of letting go of that kind of was a little, a little scary to me at the time. But uh it was really when I the PCA human sexuality report uh, was released uh, back in May last May and and there's a whole section in there kind of talking about the the reform view of concupiscence um, and I read that report and like, Laid out in the way it is, both with the bad news and the good news, uh, the good news, which is much better than the bad news, it kind of just started to make sense. Hmm. I was like, I hmm. see this now. This is not barbaric. This actually doesn't lead me to greater shame. This actually leads me to freedom. Hmm. And that next Sunday, after that report came out, it was actually the first worship service I'd been to, because uh, this was during the pandemic. It was the first one we'd been to. I went to a friend's church, they were meeting outside. And I remember during the time of confession, the time of silent confession for the first time ever, it's like, okay, I'm going to kind of, uh, you know, let's see what this feels like. And I I confessed not just kind of like particular sins of like lust or, uh, you know, it was, I confessed like, and the fact that my heart is pointed in this direction that, that Hmm. there is, I, there is such corruption in me that like these things feel natural and come to me and that I am inclined towards these sins. Hmm. And rather than feeling shame come down on me, like it felt like a weight had been taken Hmm. off my shoulders. There Hmm. was a sense of like, this is paid for, this is covered. I don't, I don't have to feel guilty. About yeah, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to like carry this guilt and neither do I feel like I have to go around and defend it either and mm. rationalize it and explain it and try to like marry these things together. Um, and, and it was just a, it was a relief <laughs> to wow. say like, um, you know, cause I think for so long I had, I had tied together in, in kind of this um, identity that I had kind of found for myself here of, of not full fledged identifying with the LGBT community, but this almost uh, side B identity, maybe if you will, of like, I am gay. I kind of identify with the LGBT community, but I'm celibate because of my convictions. And with that kind of identity that I would, I kind of had for myself, um, I was tying together a lot of things with, those attractions and with those temptations, I was tying together things about the fact that I like to dress colorfully. I was tying together things like I preferred musical theater to college football. I was tying together, you know, the kind of TV shows I like to watch and all of these things, even like how much I use my hands when I talk things like this that I like are all, I was tying up with these, uh, these temptations and these feelings. So what I had felt like for so long was Well, if I believe that these temptations and these attractions are sinful in and of themselves, then that means that all the rest of this stuff I have to see is sinful, too. And that's Hmm. where that shame would creep in, because then that Hmm. means that it's not just my desire for something that's sinful, that's sinful. But it's this these other parts about me, like the fact like the kind of music I want to listen to the kind of like like liking musical theater, you know, um, you know, all of these kinds of things that then also become something that I have to reject or repent of, if that's all mm. wrapped up together. Yeah. Or similarly, on the other side, when they're all wrapped up together, if I don't want to say that all of those things are wrong and sinful, then I kind of have to also believe or convince myself that those attractions aren't sinful either. But when I was able to kind of separate those hmm. out, I could say, listen, I, you know, I can." there's a very unique way that God made me. I don't have to fit these tra- traditional stereotypes of what it means to be you know, uh, a white Southern male Christian, um, I, I don't have to meet those stereotypes, um, in order to say, but also these attractions are, are of sin. So, hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And that was, and that was incredibly liberating.
1: So Steven, it sounds like what you're saying in the midst of the controversy, in the midst of some of the, you know, some of the more uh, extreme criticism on social media, also probably some valid criticism coming through social media. There's also, you know, the, the existing community of revoice that is welcoming you and, uh, and, and supporting you and the work that you're doing that, the church, the institution of the church is doing its work, both both the local church and its liturgy, but even at the denominational level of pastors uh, caring for you, uh, the work of the study committee being carried out and being being really helpful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the side B community has been it's been great. You know, I've made many friends there. It's been a great place to land. Like I, a lot of people that I I love there. But, you know, there's a limitation, you know, there's, you know, online community. Cannot replace the church, uh, and especially when there's not, you know, authority, and and there's, it's just very easy for us to then all kind of be like, well, this is who I am, and this is uh, what I believe, and this is my convictions, and and how I define myself, and then it's just really easy, you know, to go in some kind of some wonky directions there if we don't have people who are helping guide us and shape us and and disciple us. Uh, And so that's where like, I, I, you know, I'm so thankful for this denomination and even for this, uh, the study report, you know, like, you know, we can joke all the time about how slowly Presbyterianism moves. Uh, but like in some ways, some ways that can be a bad thing and some ways that can just be a good thing. But like it, it Mm -hmm. does, it does the work, Like, like the system usually works and, you know, like it's really clear. I mean, you know, revoice uh, if nothing else, like raise some important questions that we had not really, we didn't necessarily, we, we had our doctrine in the Westminster standards, but like Westminster standards were not written with side B Christianity in mind, you know? And so like, mm-hmm. we're having to think, how do we take our beliefs and apply them in this situation? Um, and there were some, there was some confusion and there were some issues where like, we, we needed to sort some things out. And like, and for me, you know, realizing that like, I had some beliefs that, you know, we're we're not necessarily aligned with uh, with the reform tradition here, but the beautiful thing is that through like this this report uh, was produced. A report that has got drawn praise from all different corners of, of the denomination. And the report was helpful. I, I don't feel like you're normally supposed to read a, a church theological document, you know, and, and, and kind of be moved to praise at various points. But like, I'm reading this document, and I'm like, jotting in the mark, like, hallelujah, yes, amen. Like, this is the good news. Like, you know, this is true. And this was so, it was helpful to me. It kind of felt like it was giving me firm ground to stand on. And and so, like, that, that's just where I am so thankful for, for a church that can put together resources like this that don't just draw lines, but that also inform and move us to to praise, to love God more, and and to, to love other people more, too. Yeah. And so, yeah, I—yeah, I, um, that's just where I think the report was such a gift. Mm,
1: that's awesome. And, I mean, you know, all, all jokes about Presbyterianism aside, I mean, this is historically how the church— does its work, you know. The it, it was combining Christological heresies that led to the, the Chalcedon definition, articulating the Orthodox Christology, is 451 A.D. It takes it takes time, but it's as the Church deals with the real life issues, responds to error, that the work of producing doctrine, that doing doctrine is actually carried out, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we, we have to enter in with some level of humility too. like all of us, you know, we have to be willing to admit, like, we might not be seeing this clearly and we need each other. We need everybody else uh, that that God has put in our, uh, in our, in the church with us uh, to help, uh, to help us see him more clearly and make sure that we are both being truthful and, and gracious. (laughs) <laughs> we are full of of truth and grace, and so yeah, I I hope that everybody, and not just our denomination, but all denominations, can learn yeah. that we we need to be open to. Um To good faith criticism and to learning and growing, and that's how the church is supposed to do its job.
1: As you're wrestling through these issues and kind of post, sounds like post the 2019 conference, um, you begin kind of processing and and maybe not totally changing, but rethinking some of your positions. Sure. Um, Yeah. how How does what you've just articulated in terms of wanting to push back against maybe some of the critics and saying if you want to make me other, then I'm going to be even more other? Mm -hmm. you've got that happening, that impulse happening. And then you've got the side B community welcoming you. And then you've got the church coming and saying, you know, whether it's, it's the pastor, whether it's the study committee welcoming, but also challenging some of the Mm -hmm. things you're teaching.
2: Yeah. I, for me, honestly, a turning point I would say was, um, and this was even before, the study report came out, but it was going to attending GA, uh, the PCA's General Assembly, back in 2019 as a visitor. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of came in with uh, with almost like a, a, a besiegement uh, mindset, uh, ready to connect with people, have conversations, explain, defend what we were doing, and I, almost almost spoiling for an argument or for a fight. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really was just kind of struck by not across the board, but in general, the sense of the people I met, the people I ran into willing to listen, willing to talk, willing to engage. Um, you know, I sat down with a number of pastors and elders over my time there and, and just was really kind of struck by the spirit of wanting to listen, wanting to understand, and and having and asking good questions that were really making me think because uh, up until that point, again, like in my mind, it was like the only reason you'd be opposed to what I'm saying is if is if it's coming from a place of fear, or if it's coming from a place of, well, you just don't want gay people in your church, you know, or like, you'll never be satisfied no matter what we say. So why should we bother trying to use language that makes you happy? That, in my mind, that was really the only reason why people would be opposed. But as I started listening, I started, you know, like, okay, yeah, I, I, I see that, yeah, maybe this is, this could be unwise or this wording could be confusing for people. But overall, it was really the times of worship, a general assembly hmm. too, where um, of, of worshiping together with people who I even still had very sharp disagreements with, you know, people who perhaps had made speeches on the floor that I really did not like, you know, or did not agree with, and but then worshiping together and feeling the sense of like this is the church is my people, like this is where I belong, this is who I am, this is you know when I was baptized as an infant, like this is the people that I was baptized into. This is the identity that I was given. And, um, and yes, I experienced same sex attraction and there is some degree of like connection that that gives me with other people. There is a sense of like a shared experience, uh, you know, walking this journey together and there's, there's benefits there, but really seeing like at the core, like I am part of the church. Uh, I am part of the body of Christ. And like, this is, this is where I'm committed. These are my people. Um, And, and there was this kind of a little bit of a sense of conviction in my heart about the ways to which I, and again, speaking purely of myself of the ways that like I had kind of been moving myself away from the church and really trying to kind of like find my identity, not so much with the broader LGBT community, but with this kind of uh, this side B world or side B community uh, with Revoice, with this community where I felt comfortable. I felt seen. I felt understood. I felt welcomed. I felt safe. All of these things are good. Um, it really is a, you know, a a remarkable community of people in the ways that, um, you know, the, the love and mutual support and the ways that people are helped to oftentimes feel like they have nowhere else to go. Um, you know, and I want to take nothing away from that, but for me, um, it had become an identity for me. And as much as I argued uh, at the time that, like, you know, that by calling myself gay, I'm not making this my identity. And, it, and it's not like gay is a, a magic word or something that automatically changes your identity when you use it. But, like, for me, I, I, as I was just examining my own heart, I was realizing, like, this is actually, this is actually creating distance uh, for me between... Between me and the church, the way that I was using it and the way that I was thinking about it for myself. Hmm. And so yeah, going to GA, I think was was a really helpful experience in terms of like, not so much like the big kumbaya moment, where all like, you know, we all get along, we all see eye to eye, but the sense of like, this is This is the church. This is where I'm called to serve.
0: And when you say putting distance between you and the church, you mean like that was something you were doing, not something that was the result of your using the word gay. Like you're saying like in your own heart was putting distance. Right. Okay. Exactly.
2: Exactly. It, it, it's, and and
1: it's, it sounds like you kind of come to general assembly in 2019, almost with this um, kind of view of I'm willing to answer hard questions, but also if people would just know me and hear my story, then they would understand where I'm coming from. And maybe right. you're, you're leaving general assembly realizing that you
2: needed to be there for your sake as well. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and that I had things to learn. And really that was that was kind of what started the paradigm shift is that like realizing, you know, I kind of been lumping all of my critics into into one category and realizing like there are actually some critics out here who have who are raising really good points, who do know me, who do love me, who have demonstrated and proven time and time again that they actually do care about me and care about, uh, other people who are, who are same sex attracted, who are gay, uh, you know, the LGBT community, you know, and, and I need, these are people I trust and I need to be willing, uh, to listen and, Mm. and and consider. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I, and so yeah, it really kind of, and then, and then ultimately when, when my position on, you know, concupiscence, when I kind of realized like, oh wait, no, I, I actually, I think I was, I was wrong about that. Uh, and I, I, or at the very least, like I, I need to talk about this differently, or I need to think more carefully about this. It did start changing some things for me, uh, other, uh, other things too, again, such as, such as language, you know, and I want to be, you know, really careful about how I use this language. I do think it's a wisdom issue. I mean, I do think it's, you know, I, I, as the PCA report says, I, you know, it definitely should not be. It's not wise to over police the use of language, um, and mm. we really need to understand where people are coming from on this. And I, I still have many close friends who, you know, who use different language than I do now, and like I see where they're coming from, and I will, you know, I will defend their ability to use these words and not be considered mm. unorthodox because mm-hmm. of this. You know, like I, I, I know their hearts, I know where they're coming from. And, and for me, there's even times when I'm like, yeah, I think there are times when it could be wise for me to call myself gay instead of same sex attracted, depending on who I'm talking to. Um, but ultimately, what I, what started changing for me was realizing, like I, I don't want to use a construct, I don't want, you know, for instance, gay Christian, I don't want to use a construct or, or words or things that were gonna start tying my temptations to some deeper, truer sense of me mm-hmm. or, 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 or my identity, and again, that's not to say that like the words one uses or the constructs or things automatically do that, um, or that it's some magic incantation. But rather, for me, it was like over time, it like using, for instance, saying like I'm somebody who struggles or experiences same sex attraction. Or even saying, if I am going to say gay, if I'm somebody who is if I'm a person who is gay, just over time, even though that's a little clunkier to say, it is a reminder. It's a practice over time that helps start shaping my own sense of self mm. to say, like, this is not a core part of who I am. This mm. is not something that is true about me. It sends it communicates that to other people. And it really ultimately communicates that to myself over time. And so that may not be be true or helpful for everyone else. Again, this is where I think we really need to lean on, uh, lean hard on, on wisdom and compassion and, and, and listening to each other. But for me, it really came down to, um, this has not been healthy for me and it's actually going to be much, much better for me if I kind of start changing the way I talk about this and understand myself. Yeah,
1: that's really helpful. Thanks. So, okay. So then you, uh, so you go to general assembly in 2019 uh, the mm-hmm. study committee report, well, I guess it's after that is released and right. you get to the, the position eventually of deciding you need to step down from Revoice. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, you know, there were different theologies within Revoice or any you know, kind of different viewpoints, different perspectives. And, you know, as as I realized where I was coming down on on these questions and on these matters, it, it just really became clear that like for revoice to be able to move forward in the way it needed to go, the leadership really needed to be on the same page on a lot of these things. And, you know, it, I I, I like to describe it as, as kind of a Paul and Barnabas moment where, you know, it was, I believe that, you are listening to God, you are listening to the Holy Spirit, I believe that I'm listening to the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And it seems like at this point, it's, it's going to be it's going to be smart for us to part ways, uh, and serve and serve God separately. Um, and so yeah, it was it was really kind of a sense of, uh, yeah, this is, I, I I no longer believed that that was where God was calling me to serve.
1: Yeah. So I, I would love your insight on the question of, you know, Brad and I are pastors. Uh, a lot of our listeners are pastors. Um, what what do you, uh, how would you help pastors who are wanting to, you know, be be very clear on the gospel and the importance of the truth of scripture, but are also incredibly eager to create a context that is welcoming for people who are struggling with same sex attraction, you know th- that might be somebody you know uh, like yourself who who is uh, um, convinced that the bible 's position on sexuality is, is good and true, but I, I suspect in most cases it's probably more likely to be um, encountering people who are saying there's okay I 'm curious about Jesus i 'm um, interested in in the in the truth of the scriptures, but I am convinced that what it says about sexuality is barbaric. What can pastors do what What advice would you have for pastors in that position who are wanting to create a community that is welcoming and yet you know, it, it, it often, if the first question, you know, I get emails sometimes of, Hey, we're thinking about visiting your church, but first we want to know what's your position on homosexuality.
2: Yeah. Well, man, I, I mean, I feel like it's not going to be a too revolutionary of an answer to say, <laughs> you know, you gotta lead with, uh, lead with love and grace and listening, but you know, I, I think also sometimes uh, people can grow weary of, you know, those of us who have been navigating this in our own lives and stories for a while in relation to the church um, are pretty savvy in terms of reading pastor speak. And we know what... I'd love to get coffee to talk to you about that. We know what that means. (laughs) We know, we know like you're not, we know that means. I don't think you're going to like my answer. And so I want you to be able to experience and see how nice and kind I am before I give you the difficult news. Um, And I think a lot of people, you know, their kind of reaction to that is like, you could be a great person. Maybe we could even be friends. But, like, if you don't have the right answer here, I'm not going to come to your church. Um, So that's just where I think honesty is is the best policy. You know, even if that does mean that there is not going to be that next step, you know, I, I think it's actually... The loving thing to do. I mean, you can invite somebody to coffee to talk about it. I mean, and maybe, maybe they'll be willing to, but you know, but I I think what you don't want to do is pull the bait and switch. You don't want to lead people along one direction only to then kind of surprise them later. But I think the key is like framing that truth, framing it well, uh, and framing it as, you know, we, yeah, we might disagree here, but I'll be like, this is, this is where we stand. This is what we believe. This is what that means for us. This is what it doesn't mean uh, in terms of, you know, we don't—people who are, you know, same-sex attracted, gay, you know, can, uh, you know, be— full members of this community can, you know, find uh, places to serve, you know, but like, but yeah, we do have doctrinal standards. We do have, this is, we do have uh, beliefs and convictions. And even if you don't wind up coming to our church, like, I'd love to get to know you. I'd love to talk about it. I'd love to hear more of your story. Uh, You know, I'd love to have a relationship, even if that doesn't mean you wind up here.
1: This has been great, Stephen. Thanks so much. As we are trying to wrap things up a little bit here, I just want to ask you a couple of quick Things about maybe some of the more controversial things that have come out of Revoice and what's become known as the Revoice theology or Revoice movement. Um, yeah. So th- the first question is: Is this is uh, change possible when it comes to sexual orientation?
2: One, it depends on what you mean by change. That's that's the most important uh, question to start with. Uh, my shortest answer is yes. Uh, change is possible. By that, I don't necessarily mean, you know, complete orientation change, like, I was only attracted to men, and now I'm only attracted to women. I, I don't think that that is, you know, I, I, that just doesn't really happen, which is not to say that God couldn't make it happen. But no, I think in terms of, of change, in terms of lessening experiences of temptation, um, over time, uh, yes, yes. I, I, I think change is possible. Okay.
1: Um, is desire that was not wanted something that should be repented of?
2: I think yes. I think that happens. I think it's going to look a little bit different than how we repent of things that we, we do want or that we do kind of uh, mm-hmm. approach volitionally. Um, you know, it's going to be more of a general repentance Um, you know, but I, but yeah, but I think that repentance for those things really kind of helps set our framework and our mindset for understanding that, you know, we, uh, that our whole, we were dead in our sins. Our nature is still corrupted. And even as new creations, we are going to be able to, to grow and become more and more like Christ. But yeah, the understanding that like these things still flow from sin um are still in and of themselves properly known as sin. Um I, I actually think that being able to repent of those leads to a lot more freedom than actually than mm-hmm. leading to shame. Yeah. At least for myself. That's what I've experienced. Mm.
1: And then should Christians use the term gay Christian?
2: Ooh um I think it's it's a big it's a big wisdom thing and and this is where I think there's actually two questions that often get conflated in this one. Um, there's the question, of like, should we use the word gay? And then should we use the term gay Christian? And... I have a bigger issue with the construct of "gay Christian." Not so much just if it's an adjective and a noun that just so happen to follow each other in a sentence, but in terms of like referring to myself as a gay Christian or calling myself a gay Christian, I think that that is that there is a lot of potential for that to be misunderstood, both in who you're communicating to, but then also the more you use that term, the way it can kind of tend to shape your own view of yourself too. Hmm. So no, I, I, I think there's some significant wisdom questions there. I, you know, I would hesitate to say, yes, that's fine. No, that's not fine. But, but I, yeah, I have, I think there's some, it's a wisdom thing, but that doesn't mean that it's unimportant.
0: Cool. I've just got a couple more rapid fire questions for you. And these are especially kind of maybe even oriented toward those who are listening and are really do not give a rip about denominational politics or, Mm -hmm. you know, anything like they're, they're like. Maybe listening and are, you know, listening is probably the most vulnerable thing that they could do because they've even felt burned or what have you. So, um, you know, how would you address how would you, Stephen Moss, answer the question like I I am under the impression and have always understood that uh, what you're saying here. Is oppressive. Like, how is repressing your sexuality not that? How is this good news? Why is it worth it? Like, how how can you be a Christian in the way that you're talking about and not be dehumanized in some way by not following through on your orientation?
2: Absolutely. Um, I think first and foremost, I would say, like, you know, I believe that we are heading for uh, uh, the new heavens and the new earth in which uh, there will be. No more marriage, except for the marriage of uh, the church to, to Jesus. But you know, and so we're heading towards a future where, in some sense, we're all going to be single. And and so when I look at the trajectory of, of of human history and trajectory of scripture towards singleness, that is the end. That is the what we're pointing towards. I just I just reject the idea that being coupled or uh, or romantic a romantic relationship or even sex. Uh, is a core part of, of being human, and it's even just kind of a it can be an especially kind of cruel position for you know someone who can't get married for any number of reasons um, to say that they're somehow not experiencing the you know the full breadth of the you know the human experience um, by not being married or not having a romantic relationship, and so but at the same time I also don't want to take away from the fact that there is difficulty. I mean there is Longing there, there is sadness. There is loss. Like there is a lot of good too. You know, like you know, God provides, but there is a difficult road to walk. In the same way, there's a difficult road to walk in marriage. But I ultimately just have to come back and say that Jesus is better. You know, that if if Jesus is who He says He is, and Jesus did for me and for the church what He's He said He's done and what I believe He's done, uh, then that means that Jesus is ultimately trustworthy. Hmm. And that means that Jesus is good and Jesus is worth it both here and now, as well as in the world to come. And so it's not so much to try to take away or say like, Oh no, it's easy. It's no big deal. Like, you know, giving up, giving up sex or even more so giving up a relationship. Uh, it's, it's certainly not easy and especially not in our culture, but, but that doesn't mean that there is, you're not just giving it up. You're giving it up for something that you believe is better. Hmm. Um, and I think when the beauty of that picture, you know, kind of captivates your heart and grabs your grabs you by the soul, you kind of, you know, yeah. And that's why I always tell pastors, you know, we were talking to people. It's like, you gotta, you gotta introduce people to Jesus first. They got to know Jesus first because Hmm. You know, that's Jesus is the only way that any of this makes sense. You know, that's <laughs> you you you, you got to see the beauty of Jesus and what he has to offer. And this is where Rachel Gill I highly recommend Rachel Gilson's book, uh, Born Again This Way and her story of coming to Christ, her beautiful story of how she was not a Christian in college. Um, she was you know, dating women uh, and then just becoming a Christian and then realizing, wait, if I actually think this is true. Then Jesus is better than anything else that's on offer here, wow. and that's that's the that's really the approach.
0: Okay, man, that's good. Last question. I, yeah. I, I, a narrative theme that I hear throughout your whole story, this whole conversation mm-hmm. we've been talking about, is always either in the background or the foreground mm-hmm. is the Bride of Christ and in the midst of your wrestling with this pastors communities different people have have been a part of your life and pointed you in the direction of Jesus and his worth mm-hmm. in ways that i uh, mean like i just I, I have i have so many friends that 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 their experience was the opposite that the bride of yeah. christ was um particularly painful not accepting there right. was they were told that they couldn't belong there um yeah. and yeah. Never mind concupiscence, or if I pronounced it right. Sure, uh, right. Uh, so, can you talk about speak specifically to those who've been especially burned or disenfranchised or gun shy uh, around the topic of SSA, their experience or the experience of their friends, etc. Like, why should they give the church another chance? And and like like, what has that meant to you? Like can, like, translate your experience to that.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think. Any any response or reply that the church has on this, I mean, has to begin with repentance, right? You know, we have, uh, at the expense of um, getting doctrine correct, have oftentimes done significant damage or great abuse to people in the church, uh, over this, both inside the church and outside the church. And I think we have to acknowledge that we have to repent to that. We have to listen to the stories of people who have uh, been deeply hurt uh, by people in the church. But, but yeah, I, it's always so tough when I, when I, Tell stories about ways that things have gone well, or, or good churches I've been in, or good pastors I've had. Even the pastor who responded so well when I came out to him. Because on one hand, I realize that that's not true for so many people. As you have, as you've uh, referenced, so many people have a you know way more difficult road or, or, or story here than I do. But part of my desire and wanting to share that is, in some ways, to hopefully point to the fact that there is hope. Like there is uh the the church can be a family for everybody for married unmarried, those who are same sex attracted those who are not you know Democrats Republicans old young you know all across the spike like the church can be that family and that is the good news that is the pot that is what not the good that is not the gospel like that is that that's the good news here is like that's what we uh really need to put front and center. Mm. Because, again, it's like people need to meet Jesus before any of this is going to make sense. People need to see a better community, a better a, a place where they can fit in, a place where if they give up sex, if they give up this relationship that seems like it's going to mean so much and be so significant, they need to know that there's going to be a better and more beautiful place for them to land. They're not giving up love. They're not giving up intimacy. They're not giving up, um, you know— having spiritual children, having brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, like there is a family waiting for them and there is love. Hmm. And so, I mean, that is, you know, sometimes that means like, you know, maybe you need to find, maybe you need to find another church, you know, (laughs) maybe like if, if, if this Hmm. church is like, if you are, if you are not able to hear the good news because of, you know, the, the ways that you have been treated or like the history here, you know, I, sometimes that means finding a church where you are going to be able to hear the gospel and, and find family. Uh, sometimes that means, you know, sticking it out. Sometimes that means, you know, doing that work and realizing like, man, family is messy and family is difficult. And sometimes it's like, you know, I've been there, I've sat around being like, well, nobody here is reaching out to me. Nobody's getting to know me, you know, but you know, there are ways to get plugged in and, and start getting connected. And so, I don't want to, I don't want to take away from the difficulty of it. But as much to say, like, I've seen it done well, I know it can happen. I know it's there. And um, that's just where I also want to call the church to, you know, like, gosh, we have to, we have to stop fighting about all of this. Like our doctrine is important. We have to make sure if, if we don't have our doctrine, right, if we don't, if we don't know what we believe, and if we aren't, you know, teaching the truth here, then we're we're not ultimately helping people. But my mm. gosh, like we have to, we have to lead with compassion, we have to lead with listening. And we have to make sure our churches are places of of family and belonging, not just for people who are same-sex attracted, but people who are single, uh, people who are married, uh, again, old, young, totally. uh, across the board. So well, it's yeah. kind of
0: like, what, uh, to paraphrase, you know, where we were earlier in this conversation, Scott Saul's right? Truth without love is abuse. Love without truth yeah. is neglect. And right. truth with love is the gospel. So Absolutely. let's give it to him.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Stephen, thanks so much for talking with us today. I, I, I um, one of the things I've been thinking about as we've been talking is th- these issues, the issues of sexuality, um, are so personal and issues about same-sex attraction are are so controversial in our time Mm -hmm. that it it can just be so hard to even talk about. And yet it's so important that we do in order to love uh, both those who experience same-sex attraction, but increasingly just all of our unbelieving neighbors. Mm. I know it's a hard conversation to have, but I think in order to to be the people that Jesus is calling us to be in the world, we've got to be willing to have the conversations and not say that, the mistakes that we're willing to make are only those falling off on the conservative side of the spectrum. We, right. we have to be open to risking fall, uh, falling off on these sort of, you know, I hate using the political terms, but the the left side of the spectrum, the left side of the yeah. road as well. And I think what we've heard you say and what you've modeled over the last number of years is not just a willingness to um, be vulnerable about your own story and speak into issues that are difficult, but you've also been willing to to listen and to say... Mm-hmm okay, I was wrong. I, I've repented. Um, I have learned. I've changed my, uh, you know, things I'm, I'm believing and teaching when I've been corrected. You've also not let your experience trump your passion for following Jesus and for uh, the truth of scripture. So thank you so much for doing that. And thanks for sharing your story with us today. I really appreciate you being here.
2: Absolutely. I appreciate the
1: opportunity. Thanks so much for joining us today. This has been a long but important conversation. If you're just joining us for the first time, please go ahead and hit subscribe. We're exploring issues around identity and following Jesus in this post-Christian world every week. And we would love to have you with us. Next week, we'll be talking with Michael Ware about politics and how political ideology has supplanted faith in the identity formation process of so many Americans. Americans. We'd love to have you with us for that. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our new theme music was recorded by Danny Rankin, who also designed our logo. We'll be back next week helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world right here on Everything Just Changed.